There we go. Can you hear me now? Should be good. Yes? Here we go. All right. Christ, I don't have my phone on me. I'm so unprepared for this. Uh, as you can see, I'm at home. By the way, my name is Luke Thomas. This is the weekly promotional malpractice live chat. I believe this is episode 133. Um, today on the live chat on the podcast. Here, come here, buddy, since you're here. Everyone wants to see you all the time. What's up? I'm at home. Barbus is here chilling. Uh, we're going to talk about R Rampage versus uh, Bellator. We'll talk, if you want, about Ronda Rousey and Walmart. We'll talk about, um, there's actually three events this weekend. World Series of Fighting 20, Bellator 136, and UFC Fighting 964. That's the, the rematch between uh, Krokop and Gonzaga in Krakow, or Krakow, however it's properly pronounced. Um, so all of that's up for grabs. Anything you want to talk about, MMA fighting is the best place to do it. I apologize for being at home. But I got a copy of that Rampage uh, judge's order, and I had to finish it, and I just couldn't make it into the office. I, um, I, uh, I usually, I really want to make a habit of doing my live chats at the office, but I couldn't make it happen. Anyway, neither here nor there. Uh, you can hear my animals making a bunch of noises. I'm gonna throw them out the window here in just a minute. Uh, best place to ask your questions is on MMAfighting.com um, and Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Be sure to use the hashtag Chat Rappers. Today's diet soda is Diet Mountain Dew, which I have to say among all diet sodas is the best one. And it looks like I didn't shower, but I went to the 930 Club last night to see Jose Gonzalez, and it was amazing, but I did shower. All right, with that out of the way, these disclaimers, um, let's do this, shall we? Rip-roaring start to this live chat, hasn't it been? Amazing. What a uh, professional I am. Okay. First question. Oh, also there's PBC, Lamont Peterson's fighting, but there's no buzz for Lamont Peterson here in DC. Since that, since this, the, the, uh, when he tested positive for elevated levels of testosterone or the synthetic testosterone anyway, synthetic testosterone, I think bef before the, before he tried to fight Khan the first time, um, his buzz has died pretty dramatically. All right. Just in get, and also Mike Wise doesn't write for the post anymore. So there's that too. Uh, okay. Justin Gaethje and Will Brooks. Justin recently fought and Brooks' second title defense is imminent. Firstly, do you think this is better between the two? Let me start back over. Firstly, who do you think is better between the two and who would win if they faced each other? Secondly, where in your opinion do they rank compared to the UFC's lightweight division? So let me pull up the rankings for as flawed as they are, at least for like a general view of how things go. Between the two, I would say Brooks is better. I don't think Brooks is um, – I mean, I know Gaethje wrestled in, in college and wrestled well, but the way he leaves himself exposed with his striking, someone like Brooks who is patient and, and um, has explosive speed would be able to take advantage of that, I think. Plus, Gaethje just sort of fights to a way where he would exhaust himself. I don't, I don't think Brooke, uh, Brooks is that kind of guy. So at lightweight, at 10, you have Alvarez, then Thompson, Jury, Barboza, Johnson, Henderson, Melendez, Cerrone, Nurmagomedov, and then Pettis, and then Dos Anjos. Um, you know, maybe maybe those guys could beat, um, and then you have Green, Ferguson, Miller, Iaquinta, and Masvidal. It's, it's a tough call, to be perfectly honest. It's a really tough call. I don't know where you would put those guys in there. I certainly I have a hard time seeing either of them in the top 10 at this point. Maybe you could make a case for having them um, at 12 or 13. But, you know, I would still want to see, like, do I, do I think that Gaethje could beat Iaquinta? I'm not so sure. I definitely don't think he could beat Masvidal. So, you know, maybe top 15, certainly not top 10 for either guy. Not yet. But that could change. You know, you never know. 
Uh, Half-point scoring system. Luke, I'll try to keep this as brief as possible. Wouldn't a half-point scoring system in MMA solve a lot of the issues with judging? In my opinion, a lot of the issues with the current system is the vagueness of 10-9 rounds, with there being no real distinction between a razor-thin round that is hard to call as opposed to a dominant round that isn't quite enough to be considered a 10-8. So, for example, in the masvidal Iaquinta fight, the first round was clearly more dominant than the second and third, but received the same 10-9 scores as the other rounds. Wouldn't diversifying scorecards allow half points resolving some of these issues? It's an interesting question. It's one I've pondered a very long time. Um, I don't know why you have to have a half point there. So, first of all, let me make a couple points about this about this fight because they're all kind of relevant here. Um, this fight is the intersection of many problems in mixed martial arts. Number one, it's a problem of judging that anyone could claim to give the second, third round, whatever. You want to have debates about it, fine. Even then, I think Masvidal took it upon second review. First time I gave it out to I Quinta, but fine. You can at least have some debate about that third round. It's really hard for me to see even the terms of the debate for the second round. I, I'm not really sure I understand that. And I, I and this is even me taking a sort of liberal approach with um, how we evaluate effectiveness and who really landed maybe the harder shots and giving a second look to Iaquinta and seeing maybe some of the things he did differently. He got knocked off his feet, not rocked, but knocked off his feet twice in that second round and was aggregately outscored. And the defense of Masvidal was excellent in that second round. Also, never surrendered a single takedown. How on earth did Iaquinta win that round? He didn't win on volume, he didn't win on damage, and he didn't win on any kind of single sort of striking phenomenon. Everything was better. Literally everything was better for Masvidal. So, like, that second round to me is really not up for debate. So you have a judging issue. To your point, in that second round and the third round, too, um, there's a scoring issue there. How could that one round, and and if someone gave it a 10-8, great, you know? Um but to be going back just one second, I don't think you can have scorecards of all the way 30-26 to 29-28 Iquinta. I think you can go all the way from 30-26 Masvidal to 29-28 Masvidal. I think that's probably okay, um, given the way we currently score. But I don't think I don't think you can go 29-28 Iquinta. Um, so, <coughs> so there's a judging issue. The scoring issue, though, this one to me is really interesting. Why do you need the half points? In other words, I don't think that your claim is wrong. It's not. It's you're totally right that look at that 10 nine, look at that 10 9 in the first round. How could that possibly be the same kind of 10 9 that you see in rounds 2 and rounds 3? But to me, why would you have to go to a half point system? There are many integers before 9. 7, 6, 5. I'm not saying we have to go all the way down to 5, but I don't know why introducing a half point system uh necessarily makes things easier to I'm going to I'm going to throw you out the window, animal. I'm going to throw you out the window. Here we go. Ready? Get in the box, stupid. Got in the box. Hold on. I got to throw this animal out. Come here. Come here. <laughs> Say hi. Go. All right. Well, that out of the way. Um, it's not clear to me what the half point system illuminates. So I don't know why you can't say having a clear guidelines about establishing 10-8 or clear guidelines about establishing 10-7 and to a lesser extent even 10-6. Now, I don't know if you really want to go down there, but my point being is people are essentially trying to keep the architecture in place and then adjusting off of it. I would say keep the architecture in place and just the, adjust the architecture, right? So we don't go to a, a half-point system. The half-point system seems to be deeply unnecessary. The last thing I think should be said about this Masvidal fight that I think is really important here is 
the nature of who Masvidal is. You can make a scoring claim and you can make a judging claim, but I think really what you have to focus in on is um, a claim about who Masvidal is. Masvidal should have never let the fight get that close. He's way too good for that. Way too good for that. I made this in the point in the Monday Morning Analyst. Did anyone leave that fight being I'd rather be Iaquinta except for the fact that he won on the judges' scorecards? No. Visibly, he looks terrible. Did anyone leave that fight thinking, well, Iaquinta is clearly the better fighter? Never. Never in a million years. And so to that extent, I do think that Masvidal has a claim about robbery and so forth. However, um, while I don't think his offensive output declined in the most dramatic of ways in the second and third round, it should have never been close. He is the kind of fighter against a fighter like Iaquinta where it does not have to be that close. And for me, Masvidal seems to always find himself where he's either got, in this case, an early lead and let it slip, or he starts poorly and has to dig himself out of a deficit. And he's done both successfully or not, but to me, it just does not make any sense for a guy that good to have to put himself in, in this kind of precarious position over and over again when he doesn't really have to. Someone says, this turned green for me last week but ran out of time. Hold on. Um, let's see what he says. Uh, if you watch MMA for long enough, it seems that things tend to repeat themselves. That's true. When was the last time you were genuinely shocked and surprised by MMA? I'm not sure what you mean by that. You mean like the sport? You mean like what you see in the cage? I'm, I'm assuming it was what you mean in the cage or what you see in the cage. Um, genuinely shocked and surprised. Um, when Anderson Silva got knocked out, I was a little bit surprised by that. Um, and especially the second time when he got rocked again and nearly stopped by Chris Weidman. Those were two times I was like, wow. Um, what else? Um, they, they happen. It's not, nothing really comes to mind except for those necessarily, but they certainly happen. They happen at moments where you see some kind of technical innovation. They happen at moments where um, an outcome is very surprising. I, I don't get quite out of my feet for knockouts, but even, even at, at Saturday's UFC Fairfax, the initial combination that Masvidal used to drop Iaquinta, it, di you know, it's funny about watching things in person versus watching on tape. On tape, it didn't look that great. In person, it was phenomenal. There was something about the angle at which I was sitting. You, you couldn't hardly see me on TV, but I was sitting kind of, uh, I was sitting to the left of Elliot Cepeda, Elias Cepeda, and uh, I was kind of behind a ring post. But they were just, they were just right there, and it was the, it was the, 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 the range was perfect, the timing was perfect, the location was perfect, and there was something about seeing it there that was like, I even exclaimed, "Whoa!" when I saw it. You know, that's not shock or surprise as such, but it is a certain kind of um, vividness of the experience that really catches you in the moment. And, and so to that extent, sure, you know, um, yeah, I still get excited all the time by it or, or whatever the case may be, but this is sort of the, as a different side point I want to make here, this is something that I've been highlighting for a while, which is that I certainly believe that there is no substitute for training. And I certainly believe there is no substitute for having technical knowledge of things. Um, and I would encourage fans to the extent possible to read books or watch videos or read articles or, or just train if, if you can. I understand that's not a possibility for everybody, but th these things are important. But even without that, I think the one thing that you could always tell when a fighter is a student of the game or even a fan is a student of the game, because when you watch enough fights, even if you've not trained that much or maybe hardly at all, you can still pick up on things that work in mixed martial arts. You can still have this 
the, when you have this overview of how MMA works and when you see things work at different levels or not work at different levels or tendencies at different levels that begin to change as they go up or they get distilled out or whatever the case may be, when you watch enough fights, when you see enough of the product at the various levels and you truly examine it, you can pick up on things that I think allow you to give some kind of, at least from a macro perspective, technical insight. I truly and absolutely believe that. So. Um, when a fighter brings their experience having trained this stuff and having watched, because you see a lot of fighters like, nah, I didn't see, nah, I didn't watch, nah, I didn't watch. And that's fine, nor do they have to. They, they still have a lot to bring in terms of technical, technical expertise. But when you get both married at the same time, you really get a special case there, and it's, it's worth being celebrated. Uh, okay. Uh, Benson Henderson offering to step up to save UFC 186. I'm loving Benson's new attitude. First off, he's awesome, right? He most certainly is. Secondly, who do you see as a viable opponent if the UFC does bring him in for UFC 186? I guess they're not going to do it, but I kind of thought Masvidal versus Henderson was awesome. Masvidal trying to, you know, wash the bad taste out of his mouth. Henderson trying to, you know, uh, uh, be on a roll. I also liked it because Masvidal's a bigger lightweight. Like he's much bigger than Ally Quinta in frame. Remember, he was a little too small for welterweight, but he's a really big lightweight. Bit of a tough cut for him, but he can manage it. So for me, it's like, not that you get the same kind of experience of him going against a welterweight, but you get somebody who maybe not ranked where they should be, still provides enough of a challenge, and has kind of the physical dimension in play to give Benson Henderson maybe more of a thorough challenge than people realize. So um, I really like that one, but I guess they're not going to do it. Absent that, I'm not sure there's a lot of opportunity here on short notice to give him the kind of fight that is befitting someone of his stature. Uh, okay. I'm going to answer this question in the most gen generic of ways. Um, someone's asking about Brian D'Souza and what happened at the Toronto press stop. I said this on Twitter. I'll just basically repeat what I said there. I'm not going to get into any specifics about um, uh, things that have been said since then, except to say, um, you know, if you're a reporter in this business long enough, you've, you've pissed off a manager or a fighter or a promoter. It's just inevitable. Like you're not in the business of, um, I mean, you can make friends and making friends is, is, is important, but um, it's inevitable that you're eventually going to get sideways with somebody, even if you do your job properly. It's just not, or, or you could have made a mistake. I've made plenty, believe me. All these things are possible, right? Um, here's what I would say just generally, without commenting on that situation specifically. And I think I said this on Twitter actually about this specifically, so we'll just talk about it there, which is to say, look, um, I used to do things, I'm not saying this is what Brian D'Souza did, I'm just talking about myself. I used to do things where, uh, especially when I started out early, where I would rage at things. Oh, my God, I'm so angry about this. And I wasn't necessarily angry, but I would write in a way that was particularly provocative. And I'm not saying that doesn't have a place. I think that it does. And I think when that Dana White video came out where he attacked Loretta Hunt and then used the, uh, the gay slur, I think coming out with righteous indignation, and it wasn't just me. It was the whole community. I think that was well placed and well-intentioned and necessary, right? But what I basically found for my own career was that I'm not saying it's wrong to, um, um, certainly not wrong to challenge authority. Uh, in fact, it's quite necessary. But I just found in terms of like raging back against someone, I found it very ineffective. Very ineffective. Feels good to do these uh, really important figures and they may have a point you know they may be right but ultimately it means nothing like look at Roger Goodell um, and this is probably a unique situation but like you see all these media reports Roger Goodell is this Roger Goodell is that you know what Roger Goodell is he's still the president of the uh, or of the head of the NFL right that's what he is 
In other words, all of that criticism did nothing, did nothing. It didn't, in the end, it meant little. Um, now, he is particularly a different kind of entrenched power, but the point being is, is what I have found to be the most effective, and even then, sometimes it doesn't work, and Goodell's another case like this, um, is reporting. It's just reporting. It's not getting into, personally, it's not, it's not trying to fight fire with fire. I don't think you can win, especially when you're going up against institutional power in that way. Um, it's just reporting the facts. Whatever the facts say, find them. And it's hard. And telling the truth, honestly, is not hard in the sense that you have to be honest, but getting the full picture is hard. These things are difficult. Reporting is hard, and it doesn't always work. But more than anything else, if you don't like something, report on it. That's it. That's it. Um, and you'll recall, like I've been, uh, I, I was the subject of a, a couple of angry tweets twice from Dana White in my career, once early on, and then that actually worked out fine. And then, um, and then uh, I was in Glory 14 for um, Zagreb, and he had tweeted back to me. Remember the the, the uh, who gives an F thing? WGAF. Your opinion equals WGAF. I didn't respond for what? I'm, I'm going to get in a shouting match over Twitter with him? Like it's not it's not going to do anything. Um, I just. I let the, uh, the court, I ignored it, you know, just let it play out. And then I just continue to do my job. And then, you know, last year I get nominated for I, I, whether I deserved it or not. Last year I got nominated for journalist of the year. Uh, you know, you can have success both professionally and you can find out the right kinds of things. I, I just, I'm not going to pay attention to that. I'm going to pay attention to what my job is. I'm going to pay attention to what the story is. And I'm going to do my job to the best that I can in identifying facts and, and making them public. And that's all you can really do. That's the, that's the most way you can have impact. If you want to have impact and you want to actually make a difference, uh, and this goes for everybody in the game, and I'm almost looking in the mirror as I say it, get as much information as you possibly can and report it and find an intelligent way to synthesize it for audiences. That's it. All right. Why don't judges have monitors yet? I saw you sitting right behind one of the judges at the past UFC event. How did you score the co-main? Uh, at the time, 29-28 Masvidal. Now I'd give it 30-27 Masvidal. I had Al losing while at the event, but when I watched replay after I got home, I kind of had Al barely winning. I do not know how that is possible. Also, how often do they rotate their seats? I saw two of them switch, but not the guy in front of you. They do switch. Um, if they do UFC shows, they're given monitors, but this is simply a budgeting issue. If you go fight for Rage in the Cage, or even around, how about how about this cage three fighting championships are they going to have the money to provide a monitor for you this is they have to do that out of their own pocket and so to the extent that it's you know uh, economically viable um they will to the extent that it's not they won't but the, the 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 commission can't require it because it places an undue financial burden on these operations that have pretty thin profit margins to begin with so ufc could of course afford it and they should be required to do it maybe even bellator to a lesser extent but um but um, but that's why it's not mandated. And they do rotate seats. Uh, it's going to be bad. The last time the UFC pay-per-view event sold less than 100,000 was UFC 53. Ten years on, are they starting down a barrel of repeating that with UFC 26? Well, let's be fair. You guys know I'm the king of the oversaturation argument. But even in UFC's defense, um, such as you can make it, um, look, Carr was riddled with injuries. It was never that strong to begin with, although it was much better. Um, and then putting Rampage on there was, I don't understand. Okay. The one thing I'll criticize UFC for here is two things. One, you have a schedule so packed that, you know, you're, you're only getting 350,000 views for an initial air. And I think they doubled that, um, 
um, on the second viewing. But you know, you're going to be you're ending a main event on at 4 p.m. I mean, it was great for me, but it's not good for business. Um, and you have to do that because you have so many fights that you have to make because you have so many guys on roster. So you're doing so many shows that you run into that. The pay-per-views are not exempt from this. Um, you know, they're they're doing more uh, feast and famine operation now, where instead of sort of spreading a general thinness about cards, they're making some stack and some not. I think that's actually the better way to go about it. But you get the idea. Um, so there's that, and also I have no idea why they tried to sign Rampage. It makes no sense to me. I mean, I make some sense from a from a competitive standpoint, but even then, that has consequences down the road. So in that sense, I don't understand why they would ever sign Rampage or try to put them on a Canadian card. Um, that makes zero sense to me. So the extent they did that, I think they're deserving of blame. But, um, you know, the card the card just suffered from injuries too. I think you just have to give them some kind of credit there. So look, it's the same thing I always say. If you want to support Demetrius Johnson or the potential future of Koji Horiguchi or Michael Bisping or anyone on that card, you need to get there and you need to vote with your dollars. You need to show up. You need to pay for a ticket. You need to show up and, or, or stay home and, and order fr- uh, Domino's. And, and buy the pay-per-view. You need to support the guys you want to support. you got to speak as a consumer. But if you don't want to, this is something that you don't believe is worth your value to you, then you also need to send a message with the lack of your economic contribution. Both things are always in play. I always tell folks that. I see so many folks are like, oh, I bought a pay-per-view and I didn't want to. Or conversely, you know, I should have and I didn't. Don't be that guy. Vote with your dollars one way or the other. Um, but I don't know that this is a cyclical thing. I mean, UFC had a really strong January Obviously, UFC 187 shaping up to be baller. UFC 189 shaping up to be baller. 190 will have a modest pay-per-view return because of the way it's being built. That is in Brazil, but I still think it'll have a you know a general. Um, it's important for the sport to give Rousey's inclusion. So I you know I don't know exactly what this says in sort of the grand picture from any lesson that we haven't already drawn. Too many shows makes the makes things going to easier for collapse. But they can't cancel it. I, I sort of want to make a point here. I talked to somebody um, with, with reliable information about this. When that 151 show, that's when the one they got canceled, right? The one Jones pulled out of. I am certainly not saying it's okay to call Greg Jackson a sport killer. But what I am told is that, that it was financially very bad for UFC. Not that they were on the verge of going out of business or anything like that. I don't mean that, but that it was a significant cost that people don't realize. Hugely significant cost. It's one thing for UFC to um, not schedule a show and then miss out on the economic opportunity or, you know, put it one place over another or, you know, maybe hint they were going to a market and not. And these, these things all have kinds of costs. But to be that close to it and then not do it I'm told had a significant financial impact on them that they had to dial back some of the, some of their cost cutting operations across the board. Um, that it was, it was financially hugely impactful for them, hugely impactful to, to the extent that in, in some cases only now are things starting to get back to what they were before then in terms of the way in which they um, pay for uh, different levels of their operation to be a certain, a certain threshold. It was hugely impactful. So as much as it may be bad for them to have this kind of impact in Canada, um, as much as it may be partly their fault for booking Rampage and not their fault because of the way injuries go, and and as much as some consumers, I mean, the consumer discontent is not difficult to find about this. And as risky as it may be to go back to Canada and not have the kind of show that you want to have there, all these things I recognize as real concerns for everyone involved. But I, if what I was told about 151 is true for pay-per-views generally, 
there's no way they're going to cancel that. There's no way it would be a disaster to do that. So, uh, like it or not, I think 186 marches on. Uh, let's see. Overlooked fight announcement, Hanato Carnero versus Mursad Bektic, added to the, I uh, can never pronounce this word, the Conda versus Alves card. It's a sick scrap. Uh, someone says Poirier versus Yancey Medeiros. Who's your pick? Poirier, easily. Here we go, because I want to get to this. Thoughts on Rampage. All right, here we go. Are you at all surprised with Rampage being pulled from UFC 186? Uh, at all surprised. Maybe a little bit, but not much. In other words, I expected that to happen, but um, part of me was also uncertain about whether it would. You just never know with these things. Do you expect the final outcome of the lawsuit to be any different than the result of the preliminary injunction? Well, I'm not a lawyer. I don't know how capable I am of answering that question, except to say the lawyers I've spoken to think that Rampage has very little chance of success. Very little chance. Now, that isn't to say he won't win, um, but you get the idea. If Bellator wins the case, do you think Rampage will compete for them again, or will it be the end for him? I do not know. Um, this is a really difficult case to figure out in the following sense, that I just don't understand what the parties are doing here, a few of them anyway. First of all, I thought it was kind of funny that people were like, oh, there's Bellator, Bellatoring it up again. Those guys are ruining it for the fans. Yeah, those guys got some nerve, huh? Trying to protect the integrity of their contracts. Boy, they're just what 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 a holes, huh? I mean, they should they should just you know disregard the harm that it could cause them, just on the account of fans who have who may or may not watch their product, um, so they don't ruin their good time, which is not really that many people since so many people talked so much s about Rampage for the last couple of years. So it's a really flimsy argument to make that they should just walk away from this. It's also categorically nothing to do with the Alvarez situation. Alvarez had completed his contract and there was real dispute over whether he had matched and they were gonna tie him up in court regardless. This is entirely different. Rampage was in the middle of his contract. Moreover, Alvarez was in his prime. This is not a prime Rampage. This is a, I think Rampage is pretty far past it or at the very, very end of his prime, right? And that's being quite generous. Um, I think he's had a brilliant Hall of Fame-worthy MMA career, but let's just be realistic about where he is. Um, so there's that. So these situations are not analogous. I think what happened was things got so poisonous with Bjorn Rebney. Things were so bad with how, what happened with Alvarez that even though um, this is a new regime, the new regime is still fighting over a, what is essentially a Bjorn Rebney contract. In other words, that toxicity was so bad, not just from the Alvarez situation, but from the nature of this contract and the athlete discontent it created, that that Scott Coker is still having to clean up that mess. That is that that to me is kind of interesting. But in the end, this isn't about whether you know about Coker wanting to defend a Rebney deal as such. This is about Coker trying to defend Bellator's line in the sand. Like, yo, dude, you just can't walk away in the middle of a contract. Like, it just doesn't work. Like, like, this is not how life works. I, I don't see how anyone could be unsympathetic to that position. Certainly the court in New Jersey was not. I can tell you that. Um, so we can start there. I, I think the second part about it is UFC looked like to me like they were distancing themselves from Rampage in their statement yesterday. Like, well, you know, Rampage had represented us on multiple occasions that he was a free agent and ready to sign. I don't know if that means they plan on taking Rampage to court. Um 
I don't know what that means. It could mean that they're saying, well, he fraudulently represented himself. Maybe that's what it means. Maybe it means nothing in the end. Um, and also that, you know, I think the, the, I was told by an attorney who read the statement that the way in which it was constructed was, you know, to present themselves from damages in the event that they might be sued um, by uh, uh, potentially by Viacom. Now, whether that happens, I have no idea. But um, you get the idea that there's a lot going on here. Is Rampage going to get sued by UFC? Is Viacom going to sue UFC? I don't know. There's a lot of moving parts here. What I do know is after reading the judge's order and talking to some attorneys this morning, what they tell me is that usually what happens when an injunction is granted and the the language of the judge is fairly unequivocal in this kind of way, it's a preliminary injunction. They They didn't rule anything other than the merits of the injunction. Like they didn't say Bellator did or did not breach or Rampage did or did not breach. They're only talking about the likelihood of what could happen at a, at a, at a full trial after discovery. But the language was fairly clear. And so what they thought that it would happen in these kind of situations is, well, uh, we'll just settle. You know, is he going to settle with them? I don't know. I don't know what would happen here. Um, and whether he would go back to, to fighting the judge notes and Bellator noted in their statement yesterday, you know, we look forward to giving Rampage more fights. Maybe that's part of the way in which they can, uh, protect themselves legally. And, and maybe they're serious about the effort too. So maybe Rampage goes back and fights for Bellator one or two more times, but it's a really interesting situation in that for all the reasons I stated second, um, it's kind of funny, you know, the attorneys I spoke to were like, one of the things I'd highlighted was, you know, look. Bellator was supposed to provide a copy, that's what the language says, of the pay-per-view buyer. And they didn't in that strict sense. And I thought, well, they had pretty much breached there. But there was all kinds of ways that the contract called for curing the breach that would make leaving like you did impossible. Okay. And that was more or less true, except that the judge didn't find, you know, any kind of ruling about whether or not Bellator breached, but said, uh, but didn't even really address it. It said, one, um, look at the contract. The promoter has sole right and discretion about when and where and how these fights are promoted. And there's nothing in the contract about a minimal or maximum amount of kind of effort they have to put in from a monetary or other logistical consideration. So when it comes to the pay-per-view buy rates, Jackson, the judge said, wanted the copy, not so much for the buy rate itself, the number, because that was never in dispute. Jackson never disputes what the number was, roughly 100,000, give or take. What they wanted the pay-per-view buy rate number uh, copy for was that information that's contained therein, that proprietary information has information about how much money was spent by Bellator on some level anyway to promote the event. I'm told the figure was substantial, um, uh, more than $10 million, I think. Um, but that's not – I haven't been able to verify it. But um, in any event, you get the idea here that uh, the judge was like, look, you're not even disputing this figure. You just want it for that information, but that information is not really valuable to you because as a fighter, you don't have, you gave the promoter sole right to promote on the terms they see fit. And so it doesn't matter if you get that for those reasons. And logically, why would a promoter not want to promote one of its major stars who, by the way, it's taking to court to secure their services away from another promoter just doesn't make sense. So that's what the judge ruled, which to me is uh, not ruled, but sort of said in the, uh, in her order which to me is sort of really kind of interesting. Like there was no shelter for Rampage in any of these arguments. Um, so, you know, is he going to fight for Bellator again? I don't have the slightest idea. I, I, part of me finds it very hard to believe, and part of me feels like maybe he'll want the monetary return. But it was interesting. What it highlighted was, you know, in boxing, 
everyone's like, oh, this fight between these two guys is too late. It's five years too late, which is just stupid for any number of reasons, not least of which is, look, fights are kind of harder to come by in boxing sometimes, especially at the higher end or when guys have their own promotional companies because they create these promotional entities to make sure they have a say in how things are promoted. Now, maybe someone else foots the majority of the bill, but the point being is the boxing fights are harder to make and they're sometimes slower to make, but they have much more guarantees over the process. In MMA, you get these promoters can make these fights left and right. This goes for Bellator and UFC. There's, a, there's an easiness over the process. But in the end, the fighters have less guarantees. They have less rights and less input. And, you know, I'm not so sure that's a good thing across the board. Now, in this particular case, it absolves Bellator, uh, or at least it, um, it, uh, it gave them cause to move forward and win the preliminary injunction. But I'm just saying generally as a case, because this is the case basically with all contracts, which fighter is their own promotional entity? Like Mayweather has Mayweather promotions. And they don't really promote in that sense, but it does provide them some contractual guarantees and protections that, M that MMA fighters don't get. So you could be mad at Mayweather and all these other guys in boxing for, well, it's slow and this wasn't made. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe it was a little bit slow. In the end, I don't think it will have any economic uh, impact on the fight. And moreover, at least this guy has some protection. At least this guy has some, uh, you know, some basic things that will, um, you know, ensure that he has a say over the process and that, that he can use in the event that he is screwed by his partners in the process. Now, I don't think Rampage was screwed. I'm not suggesting that, but you get the idea. If something like that were to happen to someone else in the future and they were they were party to how it was promoted, you can see what would happen. Uh, Juliana Pena, what are your thoughts on her strengths, weaknesses, and potential? Uh, discuss this a little bit on the Monday Morning Analyst. I would say that she is great once – she's like Rousey in that sense. She's great once you lock up. So she had, in this particular last fight, demonstrated insane balance, good flexibility. Um, she is not gimmicky in her grappling at all. So she went for the Juji squish roll where you roll underneath – um, when she got stacked for an arm bar and used it to sort of scramble to her feet and get her own takedown where she immediately passed him out. I like that she goes for secure positions. And when she had the mount, did you know she did that Rico Rodriguez, Kyoshi Kosaka bit where she crossed her ankles underneath? Um, that won't work against somebody good, but against somebody who's not that great at escaping mount, boy, you are in a bad way there. They got you locked. And in an MMA where you have to make a choice between do I want to elbow escape and push on this leg to get my leg through and capture half guard. Cause if I do, I'm going to get punched here or do I just want to keep my hands up and then just keep sort of bucking wildly, which may or may not work. You know, that's the choice you have to make. Cause in jujitsu, if someone gets them out, I can just push on their knee. I can shrimp out. I can go one direction. I can push on their hip with this one. I can push here. I can get out and recover space. But my, if my elbows across your waist and my hand is on your knee, it ain't defending my face. And so, I don't know. Like to me, there's space there for technical innovations about how to escape mount. I would like to see some of that done. Um, but she's really good about dominating from positions there. Look, I think her enter when she closed the distance, it was not great. Um, she looked pretty much off balance and wild, and someone's going to catch her if she keeps it up. But I think she's getting better. I really like her mat wrestling. I like her scrambling. I like her hustle. Um, and I like how much she respects control positions because, you know, Guido respects control positions, but can't do much offense from him. She can do lots from control positions. So really like that a lot about her. And potential. I don't know. I think she could be a title potential, you know, she's clearly got that level.
one says four-man welterweight tournament of champions. Lawler, Lima, Askren, and Palhares. So I would say Lawler probably. I think Askren could beat Palhares and Lima. I don't think he can beat Lawler. You never know. I don't know why people keep saying this. This is so weird. So UFC gets court documents showing they are not a monopoly, score a monster energy drink sponsorship, and they don't have to pay Rampage Jackson. Safe to say they've won so far. In some senses, yes. Number one, I don't know how the Canadian market feels about losing out on Rampage, so there's a cost there. Number two, look, I'm no lawyer. I'm not saying this will happen, but part of me wonders if Bellator or Viacom plans to go after UFC for trying to sign away a guy who was under contract pretty clearly. Um, and if that's the case, then that does not help their claim at all. It could in the end, um, but to me, this is very much up in the air. Again, I'm not a lawyer. I have no idea if they have a legal standing. I've heard some lawyers tell me it's possible. I'm just trying to tell you what I've been told by attorneys, but that this idea that it's some sort of slam dunk, hey, look, UFC proves it's not a monopoly because they got this guy or Bellator held on to this guy, that does, it, that does very little. I'm told it does very little and it could all ultimately backfire depending on which way the winds blow or, or what happens here. Clay and gray. What did we learn from the performances of Guida and Maynard respectively? How long do you think Maynard has left in the UFC? I hope not at all. Did you see the um, interview he did with Frank Trigg prior to the fight? Now, look, maybe it was Skype, although I have a source telling me he spoke to Gray at the Fairfax event and that it was appalling his condition. But it seemed pretty clear to me that while the guy has never been necessarily, you know, James Earl Jones or Morgan Freeman, um, he had slurred speech in there, like noticeably bad slurred speech. Again, I'm not certainly not a medical professional, but it was deeply concerning, to put it mildly. Um, and I... And I know UFC has been trying to, UFC try to does, I truly believe this. UFC tries to do right by their guys, especially guys like from the Ultimate Fighter and season five is one of the best seasons ever, you know, um, who've had long careers for them. And I, I respect that. I truly do. But I, I don't know about this one, fellas. Um, this one seems to me like it's got to go um, and to just call it a day. And, and maybe they're worried about he'll go and fight somewhere else. I don't know. But if Bellator signed him, I'd be appalled too. Like, it's not okay, his condition. Um, someone's saying is he's not 40% of the fighter who he used to, used to be and feared as the bullying with thrilling scraps with Edgar among many. What happened to him? I think it took a lot of damage. Some guys take damage better than others. You know, Some guys can get knocked out and sort of keep going. Not that their brains are okay, but just like anything else, the capacity for damage is relative. And everyone's got a limit, of course, because we're all humans, but um, some just don't don't get it the same. Or we don't know how he's been sparring in practice or – or what's happened there? Did Frankie break him? Could easily well be. It, it, it felt to me like he looked a lot like Koscheck in that way, where early had some things going for him, had a decent uh, ability to sort of fake left and right and throw a body shot or fake left and right and then throw a left hook. That was kind of cool. Um, had a decent uh, last double, though he got taken down early too, but he had a decent takedown early. But then once Kovalev was able, able to slow things down and then dig an underhook, there was nothing Maynard could do. And then he got taken down and couldn't get back up because he got cross-faced. Um, 
getting dropped with a single shot like that. It was just, it's just not, it's just not okay anymore. You know? Um, so all these guys, man, you know, eventually, eventually look, running backs hit the wall, quarterbacks hit the wall, um, all at different times, but depending on the kind of career you've had and whatever injuries you sustained earlier in life, this will affect when you hit the wall. I'm going to try something here for just a second. I'm going to make sure this microphone doesn't crap out on me. All right, let's try something. Here we go. There we go. Can you hear me? Should be good. All right. So there's that too. Um, and let's see for Guida after his recent win, Guida was uh, sat on the presser table next to Mendez talking super fights. What did you make of that? Uh, the guy's just trying to, um, try to make some money. I don't, I don't want to make much of it more than that, which he should be, you know, lobby for it. If they can, if you can get it great. Would you still favor Benson Henderson versus Dos Anjos? after Ben lost to Rafael? You said you would still favor him in that matchup. What are your thoughts now? Yeah, well, I clearly had underrated Dos Anjos, right? So I've been made, made that mistake more than once. Um, maybe it was Iaquinta or maybe it was Masvidal. I can't remember who said it to me. That they said, if you look at Dos Anjos's game, they favored Habib to beat him again. And the reason why was not that Dos Anjos hadn't gotten better since then or better generally that he had. The difference was... Um, his defensive wrestling hasn't gotten better. Now, I'm sure it's gotten somewhat better, of course, but not not remarkably better, not dramatically better. And um, and that seems to me like a pretty salient criticism. So the question is, with a different game plan, could Benson Henderson go in there and do something to him? I think it's a reasonable thing to ask, even if you still wanted to favor Dos Anjos. But I here's what I would say for sure. I don't know about Benson Henderson. Maybe I would, maybe I wouldn't. Um, I could be convinced either way. But for Nurmagomedov, Madoff, yeah, I kind of would favor him to win again. I think he's the best lightweight on the planet with some clear deficiencies, but the best lightweight on the planet. F21, are you interested in this? Uh, not particularly, but I'll watch. Um, let's see. The trouble with Melvin Gillard. Melvin Gillard recently said he would rather be a mid-level fighter in the UFC than the World Series of Fighting Champion. That's funny. Um if we twin this with the recent missed medical paperwork leading to World Series of Fighting 20 fight cancellation, is Gillard more trouble than he is worth for World Series of Fighting? Well, I mean, if you're saying you'd rather be a mid-tier guy in UFC than the champion of the organization you work for, yeah, you've probably got some issues. Without, uh, without having talking to Melvin, I would be hesitant to make any broad um, proclamations about it. He's a guy who's obviously had his own issues with the sport and his, and his participation in it. He's had issues with camps. I think John Morgan tweeted that Melvin hadn't been at ATT in weeks. Um, so clearly we've got a guy who hasn't has, has, has some issues with, um, you know, commitment to his craft and all the things that that means. I don't mean just getting better in the cage because I'm sure he's worked pretty diligently on that one way or the other, but um, in managing his professional affairs, Hard to say he's done that as well as he could have. But beyond that, I, I think we deserve to hear from him because just not doing the things you need to do like medicals, I don't know. That to me, that could mean any number of things that could be potentially serious. And so in that regard, I, I would be hesitant to make any statements here without having spoken to him first. Uh, let's see. Chad Manson and Holloway. 
Cup Swanson versus Max Holloway is in next week, and people are asking for Mendez versus Edgar. Um, sure, that would be an amazing fight, but I think Edgar has already earned his clear-cut number one contender spot, uh, and a win over Faber would just help him confirm that. Here my dogs. If Swanson beats Holloway next week, does it only make sense to make end, uh, Mendez versus Swanson? If Swanson beats Holloway next week, does it only? Um, sure. Why not? Because, the, look, if McGregor wins, even when it's a, being a blowout, you have to think Aldo's going to get an automatic rematch. And if Aldo wins and it's close, McGregor might get a rematch. If Aldo wins and it's not close, are they really going to give it to Chad? It, will he go up to lightweight like he said he might? You know, all these things are – I'm going to use this opportunity to close that door. Hang on one second. There we are. Um, so there's all kinds of reasons to think why Mendez just won't, won't be that guy right away unless they sort of have to make it that case. So for him, staying at the top, fighting someone with a name – fighting at the top of a bell, being a co-mate, just be more visible, I think, is is what I would be if I was Chad Mendez. Because where are you going to go? You're going to go 135 where Faber is? That's That doesn't seem to me like it's really going to work. Oh, and by the way, TJ Dillashaw is the champion there, so that's problematic. You can't go to 155 because you're just a bit too small for it. 145 is great for you, but you lost to the best guy twice already. So I'm not saying they won't give him a third fight, but I think what I am saying is, if I were him, the best thing possible is to be in the biggest fights against the biggest names and just see what happens next. There's really not much more planning or you just have to sort of get lucky or hope the tide turns in your direction somehow. You know, that's the only thing you can really do. And so I feel for Chad Mendes because, man, he looked so good in that fight. Did you guys watch that? It was incredible, man. The I, I thought that the speed was going to make a difference over time. It made a difference right away, but it wasn't just the speed. Like the way he was able to kind of corner Mendez with footwork and trap him against the cage and get him to move in the right direction, how he baited him with his own lazy jab and then beat him to the punch because of the way he had worked himself around through footwork. He had caught not an angle here, but an angle here. And so what happened was he got his head truly off center. Lamas misses by a wide margin, and while Lamas tries to dip, he dips into the punch. So his positioning was great, his footwork was great, his timing was great, his proactive offense was great. Everything was great. Like, everything was great. It was amazing. Like, he's so good. He's so good. And a fight with Swanson uh, is, you know, um, if you can't beat the very best, then beat all the, the rest of the guys next to him and, 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 you know, make the kind of mark that you can make. So I don't know what they're going to do, and it's a tough spot, and there's no easy answer here, but – just keep beating tough guys, and something good will happen. I firmly believe that. Give us your view on what Iaquinta said in the octagon after the decision win against Masvidal. Yeah, like F you, and you're booing me. One thing that you didn't pick up on the broadcast that you could clear here clearly in the building was when he goes, are you booing me? Are you booing me? When he said that both times, the roar of the boo intensified. Like it, like it went up a notch each time he said that, you know. So – in some ways, I think he took that as a yes, even though maybe they were booing him and they were probably more booing the decision. So problematic there. Um, but listen, here's the thing. Did I love it? Um, I, I didn't love it. Did I hate it? I didn't hate it. I didn't really care, to be honest. It, doesn't, it didn't really bother me. What I would say is, as a general lesson, I don't think it's awesome that it happened. But there is a lot of evidence to suggest that unprofessional behavior in mixed martial arts and fight sports generally 
carries um, mostly positive outcomes. And you can hate that fact, and you can be glad that when you watch other sports, you don't get it, or maybe you can like it. Whatever your position, all I'm trying to tell you is there's a ton of evidence to suggest that unprofessional behavior is ultimately good for your career in combat sports, which makes combat sports weird, but that's the fact. Uh, division. Since the UFC is called the Ultimate Fighting Championship, Shouldn't that mean all divisions should be in the UFC? No. No, absolutely not. It'd be better than having UFC having guys who shouldn't be in the UFC to fill in spots. Gives the UFC time to make more stars. Do you ever see all divisions being added to the UFC? (coughs) I'm going to keep using this phrase because I think it works. There should be, and we can debate about the line, but there should be a general understanding in mixed martial arts, what I like to call um, the common standard of excellence. And either you meet that or you don't. And if you don't, I don't want to see you. The NFL is not a charity. Major League Baseball is not a charity. The NHL is not a charity. The NBA is not a charity. Christ, Mayweather Promotions, I mean, it may be magnanimous depending on which end of the deal you're on, but it's not a, it's a, it's not a charity. This idea that like, well, look, when the UFC signs all these guys, and even Bellator to an extent, when a promoter signs all these guys, it gives them a chance to make money and get exposure. I am so not interested in that at all. To me, that argument could not be worse, could not mean less, could not matter less, is so irrelevant. Is this the place where the best fight the best, or is it not? Because if it's not, let me know. But you've told me that it is. And if it is, any charitable act in terms of how you do business, I don't mean like you know donating to um, gay and lesbian causes or the Boys and Girls Club of America. Those are all great. I like that kind of charity. Those are, those are charitable acts. But the UFC itself is not a charity. So, like, you know, arguing that they're given opportunity to people, to me, means, like, well, did they earn the opportunity or not? Can you fight at this level or can you not? Because if you can't, I don't care to see you at this level. Work your way up or don't. E- either way, it's fine by me. But but, but uh, and to answer your question about divisions, the only divisions I want to see are the ones that rate being there. And if they don't, I don't care to see them. Maybe you have a different perspective, and that's fine, but there's a common standard of excellence, and either the division is in keeping with it or it's not. Now, you'll see me have to make some tough choices about, and this is the one part of them that I understand they have a difficult situation. I'll give them this benefit of the doubt, which is to say there is evidence to suggest that when they get into something in the sport that they can accelerate its progress. Now, that's not total, totally true or universally applicable, but there is some evidence to that. So if they wanted to, on Latin American cards, begin experimenting with uh, smaller divisions, a men's 115, for example. Um, I would not be entirely opposed to the idea because I can see why they would have a profound effect versus just waiting around for the Mexican MMA market to you know, organically mature. Okay, fine. We can quibble about that a little bit because then they can use that for Southeast Asia and other ports as well. Um, but generally speaking, are you elite or are you not elite? Oh, you're not elite? Goodbye.
The war on drugs continues. Luke, what do you make of the UFC hiring Jeff Nowitzki as it continues its anti-PED initiative? Well, again, I'm not going to comment on something that I haven't researched as thoroughly as I need to. Suffice to say, uh, Deadspin had a very um, negative reaction to him. Um, there's reasons to believe that this is a move towards seriousness, and there are also, it seems from the outside looking in, um, some opportunities for concern as well. I'm less I'm less bothered by that than I am. I mean, I'm I'm not really bothered by it as such uh, yet, anyway. Um, so I don't I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other. I mean, we'll see what happens with Jeff Nowitzki, to be to be honest, um, and whether he lasts and who knows. But what I would say is that contract issue. That's the one I'm focusing on. That's the one that's got me thinking, you know, because when 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 Lorenzo Fertitta is like, well, you know, we're having these debates internally with lawyers, and we need to we need to just stop having an academic debate about it and just go do it. I understand what he's saying. I understand that if you just have this conversation about what could happen and 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 what the law says and doesn't say, it could feel like you're just talking about nothing, and we have to get out and we got to do stuff. I understand that frustration. However, I would be very hesitant to classify trying to do something in the real world where you're asking for omni testing over independent contractors and where you derive the legal authority to do that as an academic exercise. If that's an academic exercise, it's the most important academic exercise that I can think of because that's a serious thing. And I'm not saying that they're not taking it seriously. They're taking it very seriously, obviously. Hence some of his frustration about, you know, we got to figure this out. But, um, you know, to me, that's what I'm watching is what is the contract going to say? Because that's going to define everything because the contract may say something uh, and may say something that you might find, um, you know, eye opening, but if the fighters never challenge it, it could just become de facto, you know, modus operandi. Matt Brown versus Demi and Maya has been put under consideration for the tough Brazil four headliner. Is this a horrible matchup for Brown? I think Maya manhandles him. Um, it's a tough fight for him. I'll put it that way. But here's what I would say. Like, if you ask Matt Brown about it, maybe he might like it. Maybe he wouldn't. I can't speak for him. But what I would feel confident in saying is, hey, Matt Brown, we're going to match you up with a guy who is a multiple-time jiu-jitsu world champion who even at 37 is a formidable uh, contender has trouble putting guys away, which will keep you in a fight. Do you want to fight that guy? That's a fight that I think that Brown would lose large swaths of the round, but could storm back at different parts, either early or late in the round. To me, that is, is, uh, to answer your question, horrible matchup for Brown. I don't know. Would I favor Maya? Maybe so. Would I favor Maya with nevertheless an eye towards the ability of Brown to build momentum and put away someone like Maya? either early or late, absolutely. People don't think that Brown can starch people. Yes, he can. Yes, he can, early and late. So, um, yes, I think the, the wrestling, the control of Maya would be a handful. I think Brown's defensive jiu-jitsu is fantastic. I think his scrambling is great. I don't think it will give him a lot of credit for it. And I think that on the feet, to the extent that he can make things happen there, he would chew up Damian Maya. Uh, why, why must we enjoy the fights on Monday at Stay Frosty on Wednesdays? Right now, the thing is the two podcasts I do look and sound sim similarly. In small ways and large ways, the goal is to deeply differentiate them. That starts with different catchphrases. Uh, all right. In Dan Hardy's recent excellent Fight Night video diary, that gave us a 
taster of the Polish MMA scene. We saw how very dedicated and skilled their fighters are. This is also indicative of the current exponential growth in MMA quality around wider Europe. What European fighters have caught your eye in the last year? God, I have not paid attention hardly at all. Um, and how, how long before the gap shrinks between Europe and other MMA-established countries and continents? Um, you'll know that answer when you see world-class camps pop up in these places. To the extent, and by the way, there's always going to be like polarities. Like American soccer, for example, has gotten way better than it used to be. I think most folks would agree with that, or at least, you know, measurably better. It's still also like categorically behind how good Europe is or Brazil or even Spanish speaking Latin America. Like, uh, and Asia has, you know, the Japanese have a decent team, I suppose, but um, you get the idea. Like, there's still going to be these power centers based on how things are done. So, I think certainly some cases in Europe, they'll be able to close the gap. There'll be, there was a time there where there were some elite British camps, but, um, you know, they weren't able to maintain. So, what I'll be looking for is to, to what extent is money being put into world class camps? that endure and produce consistent high-level fighters across organizations. You can see camps like Evolve. Will Evolve be able to last out in Singapore? We'll see. I don't know. That's what I'd be looking for. And then then the rest will take care of itself. Because if you have elite camps, there's enough talent there to be able to find a, people that you could mold and shape, recruit, and train. Um, but if you don't have world-class camps, yes, some things are possible. That's true. And you can get people to become champions. That's true. But that's not a sustained ability to close the gap. All right, uh, let's see. They're like long questions. If Aldo and Chad Mendes were to fight 10 more times, how many times would Chad win? Maybe two or three? Something like that? Um, maybe just one or two? Hell, maybe not at all. But I suspect he'd probably get a win in there at least once. Who's a gatekeeper for each division? Jesus, that's a long question, man. I'm going to skip that one. Let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Will GSP come back if Rory holds the welterweight belt? I do not think so. Question from Brian D'Souza, which I will answer. Hey, Luke, what is the MMA media's duty towards UFC 186, must they promote it or disparage the card's offering? They have neither a duty to promote it nor a duty to disparage it, right? Because you're asking about duty. What I would say is they have a duty to talk about it honestly, to talk about the economic realities of it, to talk about if they're asked to provide a grade about the card, they should. Um, but I always, and this, and if you watch my live chat, you know I've been saying this for literally years. I can't tell you whether you should purchase something. I don't know what your preferences are. If you're asking me from a basic consumer standpoint, does the card at UFC 186 bear any resemblance to the value proposition offered fans at UFC 187? Well, no, of course not. They're not even remotely similar in that regard, or 189, or whatever the case may be. In that sense, you have to make some choices about your dollars. But I don't know what you're looking for. I know that um, Demetrius Johnson doesn't move the needle. So what I would say is you certainly don't have a duty to promote it, and you certainly don't have a duty to disparage it. You have a duty to talk about it honestly, and that's all you can do, and you have to let the chips fall where they may. If that means making remarks that are less than hospitable in the course of being candid, then that's what you have to make. If it means, hey, look, i got to be honest, I see a lot of value here. Again, this is not going to be a car where there's going to be a lot of that. I suspect there'll be much more criticism here, speaking realistically. But but my duty is not to promote you, and my duty is not to tear you down. 
My duty is to speak to the facts as I see them. In this particular case, the value proposition for this one seems quite low. Um, there seems to be palpable fan discontent, both in Canada and the United States. And I would expect to have a significantly low um, buy rate return. For I outlined before, partly it's the UFC's fault. Why they would ever put Rampage on that card makes no sense to me. Uh, also, not their fault. Uh, injuries happened in the way that they did. Um, so there's a lot. It's a bit of a moving part, kind of a complicated question. And if that doesn't answer your question, Brian, please feel free to email me so I so that I can. Uh, all right, Benson Henderson versus Matt Brown. If it happens, who do you have and why? Well, it's not going to happen, as I'm told. But if it did happen, uh, Henderson because of the wrestling. But that's a close one, man. That's a really close one. It's a really close one. That's a good question, too. In the sense of ethereal. Um, let me just say something. So Eric, uh, if I'm pronouncing his last name wrong, please forgive me. I think he is a lawyer. He's written some stuff for MMA Junkie. He has his own combat sports blog. And he says, uh, uh, I think it's McGrockin or Magrockin. I'm not sure how to pronounce the last name. Whatever the case. He is now, every lawyer I have spoken to has either said this or something like this. Namely, Jackson better negotiate or else be tied up in prolonged litigation with no silver lining in sight. Um, every lawyer I've spoken to has been like, he needs to settle. Now. <laughs> every single one. Not one has been like, you know what, I think he should fight this. Everyone has been like, uh, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. Uh, how do you feel about Ronda Marcos and uh, Ashling Daly being stuck down to early prelims? I saw this one earlier. Drives me nuts. That one should absolutely be on the main card. Uh, Big Nog versus Struve. I don't want to see this. Love a knockout, but I don't want to see either guy looking up at the lights. Yeah, this one bothers me too. I would say, um, I would say, uh, this is what I talked about earlier, trying to give guys the opportunity to go out in ways that they want, trying to do right by like the guys that have meant a lot to them. I think Noguera is that guy. And I think sometimes doing right by them means it's complicated because you're, you're trying to give this guy what he wants while also understanding the medical concerns. Listen, here's what I would say. We all know how hard it is to exit the sport. I have talked about that for literally years on this on this podcast. You know this. You know the truth there. If this is the last one they're going to give Noguera, I can live with it. If this is one and there's another one, especially if he loses, then I've got a serious. I mean, I'd like to see him to stop now, but if this is the last one, I can say, okay, all right, fine, one more, and then that's it. You know, uh, and for Struve, I worry about him too. You know, if he gets brutally knocked out again, I would have some serious questions about him as well. Uh, let's see. It will, uh, okay. Let's see. Is, um, would you be interested in seeing Nick Diaz compete in Metamoris? Hell yes. Hell yes. By the way, uh, have you noticed that they launched their network, the Metamoris network? Like they have a Keenan seminar on there, Josh Barnett breakdown video. Um, the road to metamorphs, I think is free, but it's also on there, uh, like some nutrition stuff. Here's what was funny to me about the whole metamorphs fallout. And I have another article coming out about them on Sunday. Here's what I would say about this. And I'll, first of all, like compared to the hardball that's being played between, or I should say among rampage and Bellator and UFC, um, 
the stuff going on in grappling is like some Mickey Mouse s. It's not even remotely on the same level. And like, there's this, there's this. Um, I won't call it in, inauthenticity because it's not what it is. There's this naivete you see among the grappling community about how could Metamorphs want to do this. Every industry, and I read about this in Tim Wu's book, and this is certainly true for um, you know for telecom and things like that, um, the master switch. But there's this general tendency when industries are open to. For the, for the major power players to consolidate them. This is a natural thing that happens. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but it's it, sh- it should not in any way come as a surprise. And you know how I feel about that. So that's the first thing I'd say. Second, um, if you're Metamorris and you're trying to do what you're trying to do, why would you not want to sign Gary Tonin to an exclusive contract? Um, put yourself in Metamorris' shoes. Why would you not want to do it? Someone's going to say, well, what about for the good of the sport? These organizations... All from every MMA organization that's ever been around to 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 grappling organizations, they will do things that try to benefit the sport. That's true, but they cannot be called upon in all circumstances to do that. That's not what a for-profit business does. A for-profit business has a strong overlap with what's good for the business, no doubt about it. Like UFC's obviously done a ton of good for mixed martial arts, no doubt about it. But I don't look to them to be the savior of mixed martial arts. There's a lot of things they've done that I don't think is good for the sport. And that goes for many other organizations too. Like one organization, look at them. Oh, this this is the most important one, or this is the biggest one, or, or even the small ones. Really, I look to them to save the sport. No, 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 no. I look to them to save their business, and that may or may not overlap with saving the sport. That's just the, the way the world works. And it's the same goes for Metamorphs. Why would you look to Metamorphs to do what is always best for competition jujitsu in all circumstances? That to me makes no sense. You would never. They might do some things that do that. And in any case, Gary Tonin is like this guy that proves their theory. I don't think the theory works. I think that submission only only works when it's A, no time limit, and B, you have guys that actually want to finish the other person. But if you have 20 minutes and you put a gi on someone, two guys are just going to, you know, they're just going to hold each other and 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 um, for 20 minutes because there's no incentive to do anything. It only works if you have the right kind of guy to do it. And Gary Tonin is that guy. So if you're Metamorphs, why would you not want to sign this guy to an exclusive deal? Because you owe the larger grappling community something? No, you don't. Only thing you have to worry about is your business. And if I was them, I would have tried it too. Um, you know, I understand if you have an argument against that, being like, well, it's bad for the sport of um, you know, professional grappling. Okay, fine. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument that I think here or there, an exclusive contract is probably okay. Like the one that Copa Podio has with Leandro Lowe, for example. Uh, and maybe if Minimores had just one with Keenan or just one with um, Gary Tonin, that wouldn't be such a big deal. I would say exclusive contracts generally could be problematic. But uh, it was just funny to me, like, how could Minimores do this? Don't they know this would be bad for the sport? Well, it'd be great for Minimores, which is the only thing Minimores is supposed to care about. Uh, let's see. Let's go back to the uh, chat here. The real main event of the next UFC on Fox. Machida, one-fight win streak. Rockhold, three-fight win streak. Jacare, seven-fight win streak. Romero, five-fight win streak, although it's obviously a little iffy on that last win. For promotional purposes, I guess it makes sense to put Rockhold and Machida as the headlining fight, but which fight actually deserves the title shot? Machida and Rockhold. 
they've beaten better guys. I, um, I believe the co-main is more justified, but for all the advertisements have been for Rockhold and Machida, combine it with the fact that a five-round fight makes me think that they're the ones fighting for the title shot. Your thoughts? Also, um, Machida and Rockhold are easier to promote. There's that. But what I would say is, I don't expect this to be likely, but Machida and Rockhold, I think, are also ranked higher for whatever the rankings mean. Let's see. No, Jacare is one, actually. I'm not sure how justified that is, but it might be justified. Rockhold is four, Machida is two. Yeah, Romero is six. So they're a little, little bit more higher ranked in totality. Um, but here's what I would say. If Machida and Rockhold go out there and have a terrible fight, which I don't find likely, but let's just say it happens, and Jacare and Romero have an incredible fight, and then not just that, but that the winner eventually puts his stamp on the other guy, you might win a fortune changing. I don't think it's coincidence at all that they have two middleweight fights there. You know, they obviously are leaning in one direction, but I don't know if they're leaning so heavily that they would preclude the possibility of something else happening. Um, you can promote is great for a pay-per-view event, so that's to some extent why that's there. Jacare and Romero, they, you know, the grasp with English is probably pretty tenuous, but so there's some promotional reasons there. But I would be MMA is crazy, y'all. Like, if you're going there thinking, oh, it's unfair. These guys have no chance to get a title shot. I would not say that. I, I would not say that at all. Ronda's book. With Walmart saying they won't sell Ronda's book in stores, it's because it's too violent. How many more copies will be sold than if they hadn't said that? Uh, yeah, well, all they did was help promote her book, for starters. Secondly, what I would say is um, um, Jonathan Snowden was on Twitter talking about this. Hold on. Namely that they're only going to put their book on the shelves in retail space if they think it'll sell, right? Because they have limited space to showcase any books. I mean, who, first of all, who buys books at Walmart? I mean, first of all, and I, hardly, I try not to get political, believe it or not, on this show, on this podcast, you shouldn't shop at Walmart anyway, just for starters. Secondly, um, beyond that, they have limited shelf space. And so Snowden's argument was you need to, they need to be able to prioritize what books they're going to put up there. And so, so he, that was, that was his response to be folks being like, well, they put 50 shades of gray up there. And his response was, it's not so much a content issue, although, you know, obviously they're not going to put like torture porn up there, but it's not so much a content issue in as much as it is, what can they reasonably expect to sell with limited shelf space? And they probably don't think much of it or that there could be some violent element to it, but the violence plus a lack of a belief in its ability to move units. But look this way, if it sells gangbusters uh, on the online space where it's still going to sell, they might reconsider and put it in the stores. I, I wouldn't think much about it. But here's what I would say. Don't buy it from Walmart because you shouldn't support them. All right. <clears throat> Taking Rampage on his word. UFC's comment on Rampage sounds like they just took his word for it that he was free to negotiate, which sounds crazy. Is it more likely that they knew this was coming and hoped it would make Bellator look like the bad guy as well as give time to give them ammo in the upcoming lawsuit. Well, here's what I would say. Uh, there was some discontent early about what Bellator was doing with Rampage. I don't think it's going to stick. This is not the Alvarez situation. This is not Bjorn Rebney. This is not a guy at the end of his contract. This is not, it's not that case at all. This is a guy who is much closer to the end of his career than the beginning. Who's had a long history of uh, having bad relationships with promoters um, who was in the middle of his deal. Totally unique situations. And that's interesting to note because it was not even the deal that Scott Coker had crafted. It was one he inherited. 
and he's still in the right. So there's that. Even though the deal, I I understand why Ramp. Look, did you guys read the deal? Like they made him. They they gave him a lot of money up front in some ways, yes, but they also created a mechanism for him to get extra money in ways that was totally unrealistic. Now you can be like, well, that's Rampage's fault for not realizing that, but you know, Bjorn Rebney knew, knew it too. You're not going to give him any money on pay per view until it's over 190 thousand, or that they pull over 400 thousand at the gate. These are not a lot of economic opportunities for him, realistically speaking. Um, and I, I kind of found that to be you know a little bit eye, eyebrow raising. But be that as it may, yeah, I found that bizarre too. Uh, an attorney uh, wrote me yesterday on Twitter being like, well, what they could do is be like, we took Rampage at his word and then you know get Rampage to sign something that indemnifies them from any damages. Whether or not that will work if UFC uh, gets sued uh, or sues Rampage, or I, I don't know. But here's the point to me. Let's assume it's true that they didn't see his contract. Okay, let's assume that's true. I had access to his the Bellator lawsuit after it was filed, and I linked it in my documents on my story. So they've since looked at that deal, okay? Clearly, they've looked at that deal since then. And they've since heard from this judge what the judge has to say. I also published a copy. So Beltor's deal with Rampage is public, as is the judge's order. So we now have a situation where you have your own inside legal counsel that can look at this deal. You now have an attorney, excuse me, not an attorney, you now have a judge saying, at least from a preliminary standpoint, you can't use this guy. You may not be able to ever use this guy. You have someone internally that's going to be able to look at this. Guys, I got some good attorneys to look at this who had specialties in this area of law. I also, just as an experiment, got a couple of friends of mine who are also attorneys who don't specialize in this to look at it too because I just wanted to see, and they all came to the same conclusion. I have a very hard time believing that there are people in Zufa's law office, now that this stuff is public record, who haven't looked at this and been like, yo, these matching rights clauses are pretty clear. You didn't follow the termination process. I have a hard time believing that. So the question is, why haven't they cut him yet? Because here's what I would say. I don't know if he's ever going to fight in Bellator again. I think the chances of him fighting in UFC are zero. So why haven't they released him yet? I don't know the answer to that. Maybe because if they can keep him tied up in court, and this is just a theory, um, he can't. If, if you're in court, you can't find the cage. Maybe that's it, and maybe that's just part of playing hardball, and maybe that's the way things are done. I don't know. Just a theory. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe they actually believe that they he, they will get him to 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 fight in the UFC cage one day. But when that kind of consensus across different disciplines of law all read this contract and say it reads quite plainly, you didn't follow the termination process, dude. It's explicitly spelled out, and you didn't do it. So, A, the court might find that Bellator didn't even breach, which, which this judge kind of hinted at, or B, even if they find breach, there's a cure process, which you didn't go through. I, this, to me, seems very straightforward. So, you know, why he is still, why UFC just hasn't been like, we're done with this. Uh, you know. Draw your own conclusions. And I also have some theories, but I just don't understand. I just I I don't I don't understand. I don't understand. <laughs> I also don't know if that will work, by the way. I don't know if that will work eventually if if Viacom decides to go after UFC, if that will work. We're like, hey, we got him to say he was a free agent. I don't know if that's I don't know if that will, maybe it does, but I'm told that like 
there could be some due diligence issues there they could run into, but cross that bridge if and when we get there. Uh, all right, hold on, let's keep going here. Uh, Nurmagomedov versus the lightweight division. It's hard to imagine many matchups where Habib would not be the favorite or expected to dominate on the mat. Who has the best chance? Benson Henderson? Maybe. Melendez? No. Cerrone? No. Alvarez? Definitely not. Thompson? No. Dos Anjos? No. Maybe Ben Henderson? Because of the defensive wrestling? I don't have my phone here. Um, I spoke to Daniel Cormier, actually, and I might write an article about it, about um, Nurmagomedov. And I was asking him about his wrestling, and I don't, God damn it, I don't have my phone here. But um, what Cormier wrote was interesting. Cormier said, what, number one, this is, a, this is true, that Nurmagomedov was one of the strongest guys he's ever felt. Not the, but one of the. For a lightweight, that's a fairly strong endorsement. And number two, that he might have the best understanding of the clinch position of anyone he's ever trained with. That his his understanding of the clinch, not, not the tie clinch that you're accustomed to seeing with Anderson Silva, but, you know, if he can't get a single, maybe he can get just enough to get an angle behind you. And then from from double underhooks, he's got takedowns. If just he's got one take oh, one underhook from 50-50, he's got takedowns and how to go up and down and how to just, just everything, how to off-balance you, how to turn, how to different setups, different takedowns, different positions, hitting trips from wizards, all kinds of stuff. He said his mastery of the clinch is otherworldly. So you combine that with the guy having um, what he said was one of the strongest guys he's ever felt, and that's a lightweight he's talking about. Not four lightweights. Cormier says one of the strongest guys he's ever felt, period. Okay? You take those two together, and that is a ringing endorsement. The only issue, and this is not anything Cormier said, this is just something I've noticed, once Nurmagomedov gets his hands on you, you know, you're about to have a bad day. But it still seems to me that there's an opportunity to exploit him at distance. He still seems to like to rush in, and he doesn't come in too, too wildly. It's a little recklessly, though. He likes to throw a big hammer and then, bang, get, it, get in on the space and then drive in. Um, and that works better over time as he wears you down. But in those first couple of rounds, he can get popped. And if you can hurt him like, they, like, like Pettis did against Dos Anjos, excuse me, like Pettis did against Dos Anjos, uh, Melendez and Henderson, you can make a guy make a bad choice. If you can make a guy make a bad choice, you can make an easy choice. So... I don't think that Nurmagomedov is as well-rounded as Dos Anjos. I think we have to really give Dos Anjos credit in that regard. But I think that the thing that Nurmagomedov does well is so good that no one else can touch him in that department, not in that division anyway. Let's see. Do you know why the UFC is running more and more afternoon shows for a specific reason? Because they have to do shows that keep the uh, machine moving and that won't always come at times that are convenient for their schedule. It's quite simple. Um, you discussed the similarities between Maynard's performance and that of Koscheck. Both had fairly abrupt and drastic falls from grace. Do you attribute these realities with a slight drop in athleticism that exposed the lack of diversity or skill set? Yes. I also think the game has just matured. Did they always fight this way, but fill the gaps with strength, strength and explosiveness? To some extent, yes. I mean, they're all, they're obviously less than what they were, but it's not like their technique dropped off a cliff. It's just that they had a certain level of technique that was much more on par with the game, and their 
athleticism was obviously, you know, uh, when they were in their prime, it was just that. So when those, when, when one gives the, the relative strength of the other is also compromised. Both went from competing against the game, uh, game's best to barely scrapping together a win, scraping together a win. And then someone says, please mention Gray Maynard and Frank Trigg interview you posted on Facebook. Yeah. I think it bears repeating that multiple witnesses have reported Gray to have signs of dementia, um, pugilistica, which can show it's not limited to the heavier weight class. Well, without being doctors, I'd hesitate to make any formal declaration about what he may or may not have. But certainly I would say this. Go watch the interview with Frank Trigg and it, hearing Maynard talk um, at the very minimum. I think we can say there are certainly some moments for and uh, to pause for concern. says why is there a pound for pound list because the idea is that imagine if everyone were the same size they're not but imagine if they were um or even if they're not the idea just is how do we figure out independent of weight class who's the best guy how do we do that and it's very difficult and no one has really put forth any kind of you know formalized criteria that have been universally accepted but it's not to me a bad thought like it's not a crazy thing to ask hey who's the best guy in the world well, I know who's the best at heavyweight, reasonably speaking. I know who's the best at lightweight, reasonably speaking. But I don't really have a firm grasp on who might be the best in of all of them. And that's what Pound for Pound is trying to do. Um, it's trying to do that not just at the very top, but create a delineated list. And that's where you get problems, obviously, um, because you're comparing unlike things. But it's to me, I've often found the impulse to figure that out to be, to be well-founded. What do the medical suspensions even mean? It means that you either have to sit out that long because there's a requisite amount of time that you're required to give off or that you're suspended an amount of time pending that amount of time being removed given some kind of medical evaluation. Like you're suspended 180 days or until you get a doctor's note saying you have you do not have X condition and that you'll be ready to go within a Y amount of treatment. Those kinds of things are, are often so, but it, but if you see a suspension, it's like 180 days. It may not actually be 180 days. It just could be that long absent other things you can do to expedite the timeline. Someone keeps asking like, should they have a plan for pay-per-view cards, such as offering a free pay-per-view pass for ticket for pay-per-view buyers in the next event? There, there might be some kind of promotional deal they can work out in that regard, but I, I, I hearken back to, again, the information I was given by somebody who, um, who understood what had happened after 151. Once the ship is pushed into the ocean, it just has to go whether or not there is a storm. I think that's the best way to explain this here, or at least the only way I know how. This is why they have to reform general practices. I don't think Band-Aids, although they might help, might work and i like what they're doing stacking cards and then not stacking other cards i like that too i think that's better but i still fundamentally go back to what can the market bear at the elite level and there might be a different expectations and, and analyses therein it might be this much it might be that much but at some level there's only this much elite product there's just this much um that's all i would like to see the ufc sell and I think for me, and this is just me speaking, um, because obviously they have different priorities than me, but just me, I, I, I just don't know how you can't get around the idea that there are too many shows. Like there, 
like there's a fair amount of evidence to suggest that there is um, both evidenced by small things where you're having to go up at, you know, start shows at 11 AM or um, pay-per-views getting wrecked both with uh, injuries and, and other events that take place. So, um, you know, when you take all that burn rate and we have this much elite product minus the burn rate, that's what you actually have left over to work with. And I, I, I you know, I think that bears parrying down the number of shows that they do. That's just my impression of things. Um, clearly, I've made that I've made that known, and clearly they disagree. But there you go. Here we go. I'll end on this. Um, Nick Diaz and Bellator's Fernando Gonzalez testing positive for marijuana. Asked this question last week, got six wrecks, but was timed out. After Fernando Gonzalez TKO victory of Car Parisian in October of last year, he tested positive post-fight for marijuana. The Athletic Commission in California, however, declined to nullify his win, suspended him only for 30 days, and fined him only the cost of the test. Thank you. That is exactly what – I mean, nothing should happen, but okay. If that's a suspension, I'll basically live with it. My question, is it possible Nick Diaz might get off with a lighter suspension than many are anticipating? Diaz, like Gonzalez, had a medical marijuana license in the state of California, and the test was also only a urine one, which, of course, as I mentioned before, can only tell you that that you've consumed marijuana, not when. Um, but wasn't the Diaz fight in Vegas? I believe that it was. Was it not? Let's see real quickly. Yeah, I was in Nevada. So here's what I would say. He's a multiple-time offender in Nevada, if I'm just speaking from Nevada's terms. And I don't think they take a lot of um, – well, I don't know. I don't know how receptive they would be to Andy Foster being like, hey, here's what we did. Here's what I would say. If other commissions did what Andy Foster did, I would basically shut up because that's not still not fair to me in the general sense of things, but it's decriminalized such as it is to such an extent that – I can live with it. I think I would say that much. Um, but no, I mean, what happened in Nevada, multiple-time offender in Nevada, it's problematic, you know. It's very problematic. So I think that they're going to throw him under the bus. I think they're going to take him to the cleaners. I think they're going to make life very difficult for Nick Diaz. Would I like them to see the follow the best practices set by Andy Foster? I certainly would. But I think what they would say, I don't know what they would say. Part of me worries what they might say is, well, we don't want to encourage this kind of behavior in this in this state, and we, you know, you don't have a medical marijuana card in this state, and you fought in this state. So, what he's doing in the, in in California is fine, but that's not what we're going to do here. I suspect that's what they'll probably say. God knows, I hope I am wrong. Uh, okay, with that out of the way, y'all, I got to go. Um, follow me on uh, Twitter at SBN Luke Thomas. Thank you very much for watching. Give this a thumbs up. I promise, I showered. And um, email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. If I didn't reply this past week, I will get to you. I got a lot of emails this past week I just haven't had a chance to reply to, but I will. This will be up on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud uh, probably in a couple of hours. So until next time, uh, thank you guys and stay frosty.